Welcome. This is Barry Baines from Baines Law, a legal miscellany where we regularly podcast about cases and legal issues, as well as talking to professionals and others who have experience of our legal system. Our guest today was appointed as Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman and Chair of the Organisation on 6th of April 2017. He has considerable experience of investigating allegations of public service failure and as a result bringing redress to service users. His previous roles include Complaints Commissioner at the Bar Standards Board and Independent Adjudicator for Higher Education in England and Wales. He transformed the office of the independent adjudicator into an outstanding ombudsman service by focusing on promoting best practice and providing a more efficient and effective service to complainants. Following this, he became visiting professor at the University College London Institute for Education and also chair of the European Network of Ombudsmen in Higher Education. He was made a CBE for services to higher education in the New Year's Honours List, December 2015. He has been instrumental in preparing for Ombudsman Reform, which aims to create a single, more accessible and modern public service Ombudsman, making it easier for people to have their complaints about public services resolved. Above all, he is an avid supporter of Manchester City Football Club. Today we extend a warm welcome to Rob Behrens. Well Rob, thank you very much for joining us as a guest this afternoon. May I ask you first of all about your role as Ombudsman, which is a combined one for complaints of poor service against government and public organisations on the one hand and the NHS on the other. How are each of these services accessed by complainants? Sure. Uh, first of all, Happy New Year. It's good to be with you. Thank you for asking me. I'm the 10th Ombudsman in the United Kingdom. The office was established originally in 1967 as a parliamentary function. And the health function was added in later on in 1973. And the legislation for each post is different, although it's pretty similar. So there are, in fact, two offices which are combined in, in one role. And the Ombudsman's function is to call government to account when citizens wish to complain about a service that, that they've received. But there are two big differences between the, the parliamentary and the health service jurisdiction. First of all, in 1967, the government at the time imposed what was called an MP filter, which meant that to preserve the sovereignty of Parliament, complainants could only come to the Ombudsman office complaining about government departments if they went to their MP first. And that was put in as a temporary measure, which has never actually been taken away. And it is a big obstacle to direct access for the citizen to ombudsman services. That never applied to the health service. And 
the mandate in the health function is wider in the sense that since 1996, the Ombudsman has been able to look at the clinical judgment in the health service that people have received. And therefore, we need to employ clinicians to advise us on the extent to which there's been, for example, service failure or avoidable death or, or, or something untoward in, in the health judgments of the clinicians at the time. So they are different, but they are broadly similar. Thank you. Looking at the parliamentary aspect, uh, do I take it from what you've said that you would prefer that the filter of reference via the MP be removed? Yeah, I, I had an exchange with the chairman of the Public uh, Administration Committee in December about this. The Public Administration Select Committee has been a very strong supporter for 15 or more years of getting rid of the MP filter because they believed at the time that it was a block to citizens having access to the Ombudsman. And under Bernard Jenkins' leadership, it was called an anachronism and iniquitous. The new committee under the chairmanship of William Rack supports the removal, I think, of uh, the MP filter, but wants to ensure that MPs still have the right to assist their citizens, their complainants, where the complainants wish it. And I have no problem about that. I think that's, that's entirely sensible. And I understand the constitutional issues. So um, I don't think there's a big disagreement between us about that. And have you any examples where MPs have blocked referral to you? I've got a case which I'm going to publish next week which is about a very serious failure by one central government department to give a proper service to, to a citizen. And the MP appeared to have held on to that case for a year before it was referred to my office. Now, that's not really good practice. There are examples of these refusing to forward complaints to me. But the, the, the bigger issue, I think, I don't think that is a very uh, serious issue. The bigger issue, and I know this from conversations I've had with Windrush victims, is that some citizens feel that MPs are tied into the policy of government and therefore would not be sympathetic to putting a case to my office because it, it conflicted with with the government policy of the day. Now, I think there are elements of truth about that, but the fact that people believe it anyway is a significant issue, which has prevented, in the Windrush case, people coming to their MPs and to me. Yes, I, I can see that people may see that as a conflict on the part of the MP indeed. Thank you for that. I wonder if we can turn to your role as Health Service Commissioner and complaints against the NHS. And, and I think to some extent, there are the same sorts of issues in that it takes so long to investigate complaints and all regulators have this problem. Now, that's been impacted badly by the COVID pandemic and the ability of the regulator to respond to complaints has been equally affected. Going to yeah. tackle the inevitable backlog that's arisen in the PHSO. Well, that's a good question. I think the first point to make is that where you require frontline delivery organizations 
to see if they can resolve a case first, which I think is entirely sensible and right, then there will always be a delay in the Ombudsman receiving a complaint and, and, and being able to do something about it. It could be years, in fact. Well, it could be years, but to me it makes perfect sense for complaints to be resolved and addressed at the nearest point to service delivery that we can get. And the Ombudsman should be reserved for more serious or intractable cases. So I think that that is entirely right. Now, what happened in COVID was, in the pandemic, was that we had to close down for three months at the beginning because, first of all, hospitals were in crisis and they closed down their complaints handling teams and put them onto other responsibilities in the pandemic. And they told us that because of the unprecedented situation they were in, they would have to hold back on resolving complaints and giving us information. So we, we understood that and we stopped looking at health issues alone for a three-month period. But during that time, people were understanding that there was a national crisis and broadly speaking, they were not hostile to the idea that there should be a pause before complaints were dealt with in the crisis. But the combination of remote working, of hospitals having to deal with the unprecedented situation has meant that when complaints started to come back, we have, as you say, had built up a backlog. And that is not in the spirit of effective public administration because you don't want to wait two years before your complaint is handled. That's, you know, the point of uh, being a service is that it should be relatively timely. So I think you know, our average handling time is around, in a, good, in a good year, is around 140 days, which I think is defensible. It could be better. So we thought long and hard about what to do about the backlog in this situation, which rose to over 3,000 cases and meant that people had to wait many months before a case could be allocated to them. And we consulted with our ombudsman colleagues in the United Kingdom and, and uh, internationally as well. And we discovered that most ombudsman services in the UK have a proportionality principle in their regulations so that they are entitled not to accept less serious cases if they think it's not fortunate to deal with them or it's not in the public interest. Now, for one reason or another, we have not done that. We, we have accepted all cases that have come in regardless of the seriousness of them. And we have a long and productive debate amongst our caseworkers and, and amongst our board. And we came up with the view that in this situation, we will, for the duration of the pandemic, not accept less serious cases defined in our published scale of seriousness, which is on our website. So, for example, if, if there's been a mix-up over a, a GP appointment or someone has been rude but not terribly rude to, to, some, to some patient in a surgery, then what we're saying is that in these circumstances, we need to put our resources into the more serious cases where there's been a failure of treatment or a, a, an unexplained death or something like that. And so if it's not, if it doesn't have a 
systemic impact on our consideration of COVID issues, we say to people, we're not going to look at it. And in that way, we have cut down the number of complaints coming to us, and we have managed to put a cap up to now on the the size of the backlog. So it's less than 3,000 cases and going down at the moment. Now, Now, that's not a guarantee, and it's not ideal, but it works in the sense that we want to put our precious resource into where it's needed most, the most serious cases. Another point to make is that we've had a reasonably good comprehensive spending review settlement. So we are now in a position of being able to recruit more staff in Manchester in the next six months, and we can put them directly when they're trained into helping to deal with the backlog as well. So if you compare us to other public services, and most have a significant backlog, if you look at the court service, for example, or even hospitals, We have managed to deal with this through a pragmatic approach of saying that less serious cases will not for the moment be looked at. Thank you. That's very useful. I mean, you're quite right what you say about the courts. As I understand it, there's a backlog of something like 60,000 trials, which is huge. And of course, the health regulators all have backlogs. I say all. As far as I know, most of them have some, some bigger than others. And they all face the same sort of problems. And they don't have a filter either. The threshold is pretty low. Do you think there should be a, a filter of proportionality? I want to wait and see what the real impact has been as we come out of the pandemic. What, what I've seen so far is that it, it is sensible and defensible in public policy terms to focus your resources on the most serious cases providing you have an effective way of ensuring that you don't let things slip. So what we do is everything that comes in, we look at straight away to see if we can resolve it through, for example, mediation without it going to investigation. And that is a safeguard against ensuring that something doesn't slip through. I think the other difficulty, which you'll understand, is that sometimes cases only become apparently more serious the more you know about them once you've begun the investigation. So, you know, you don't want to rely 100% on the initial judgment that that, that is made if you don't have the option of something else as well. No, I absolutely agree. I I don't want to speak for regulators. We're not a regulator, Barry. We're we're an ombudsman service, and that that makes it different. Yeah, I understand that. Thank you. Um, I'd, I'd like to turn now, if I may, to the Venice Principles which many listeners may not be aware of. As I understand it, they are designed to protect and promote the institution of the Ombudsman. Uh, Could you say a little bit more about those principles and how they affect your role? Sure. I mean, it's not only your listeners that may not know, but in my experience, uh, some government ministers are a bit hazy about what the uh, (laughs) Venice Principles are. But basically, they come out of the Venice Commission which the UK is a member of. It's part of the Council of Europe. And the Venice Commission has, for the last 25, 30 years, had a secretariat and a body of experts who have been giving, an, giving advice to ombudsman services about their relationships with governments in different European countries. 
and they have done this by appointing rapporteurs to go to the country or to call for evidence to see whether they can resolve apparent disputes between the government and the Ombudsman Service. So that has been there for a long time. There are distinguished rapporteurs who are usually international judges coming from nations, and they come up with proposals which have no uh, coercive force. They're just done in the spirit of good practice to try and resolve disputes. Now, that's good, but the international ombudsman community, which is constituted in the International Ombudsman Institute, which has 150 members of national uh, institutions across the world, they have pressed for the experience of the Venice Commission to be codified in a way that creates a body of principles to allow people to benchmark themselves against fundamental good practice for ombudsman schemes across the world. Now, that is a very good idea because I know from my experience that every national ombudsman service is different, but there's not been a lot of work done to define the fundamental sameness of ombudsman schemes. And that's what the 25 Venice principles do. They say, for example, that the the ombudsman should be uh, a public appointment made by fair and open competition. They say that the ombudsman should be appointed by the Crown and report to, or, or the President and report to Parliament, not to ministers. They set out the terms for the ombudsman to engage with public administration to ensure that the ombudsman has access to the files of public services and the ability to go and look at the files and to interview anybody who is relevant to an investigation. And they say that, critical for me, they say that ombudsmen should have direct access, you shouldn't have to go through your MP in order to get to the ombudsman. And critically, the principles say that there should be the power of own investigation for the ombudsman. Now, this is very, very important. So there are groups of people, people with mental health challenges, elderly people, migrants, who will have challenges with public administration, but may not be capable or competent or experienced or competent enough to be able to bring a complaint. And in 70% of IOI members, International Ombudsman Institute members, those ombudsmen have the power of own investigation. They can launch an investigation without getting a complaint, and they can look at issues which they believe are, are compromising effect, effective public policy. Now, that power exists for some ombudsmen in the, in the United Kingdom, devolved institutions in Northern Ireland and in Wales, but I don't have it. And that means that I can't, or the ombudsman can't, investigate things which, if they'd been looked at quickly, could have saved a whole series of lives and misadventures in public administration. And I'm thinking of, for example, deaths in mental health institutions. Currently, there's an inquiry into what's going on in, in or what went on in Essex, where there were, were multiple deaths. Now, I looked at two of those deaths, but those were the only two families that complained to me. And in fact, there were 25 other deaths at the same time. 
which I would have looked at if I'd had the power of own investigation, but I didn't have it. So it went on, and then much later on, this, this inquiry has been set, set up. Similarly, the other example is the Windrush scandal, whereby many Windrush people did not complain to their MPs for the reasons we discussed. And if I'd had the power of own initiative investigation, I could have looked at that some years ago, and it might have been resolved by now, what one doesn't know. So the Venice principles are critically important for setting out the core powers and uh, rules for a national ombudsman service. And uh, they do say that each, each government should, each nation should decide for itself exactly how those powers should be allocated. But since the UK signed up to Venice Principles and also to the United Nations General Assembly Declaration. So the Venice Principles were adopted in 2019. In 2020, they were adopted by the United Nations General Assembly with the United Kingdom as a co-sponsor of that adoption. So they don't just apply to Europe, they apply across the world. And they constitute the only benchmark that we have for an ombudsman service as a national body. I'm thinking straight away about the Public Service Ombudsman Bill uh, as a result of that, which is in draft and which has been hanging around a long time. If that was implemented, would that assist you? Well, I mean, that, that is dead in the water. You know, I should live so long, as they, they say, in, in, uh, in places that I've been. You know, this, this was a full determination of government following years of research and debate in 2015, 2016. They committed to it. Some of the things that we wanted were in that bill. So, for example, we have a fragmented ombudsman system in, in the UK. Uh, we don't have a public service ombudsman. We divide local government from health, from prisons, from homes from higher education. We've got more ombudsmen than any other country in Europe, I think. And, and that means that people don't understand where they have to go when they want to make a complaint. So that would have been delivered by the Public Service Ombudsman Bill. They also committed to getting rid of the MP filter at the time. But by the veto of one cabinet minister at the time in 2016, and I know this from private information, and I can't name the cabinet minister, that person had a veto. And while everyone else supported own initiative investigations, uh, it wasn't introduced because of the veto of one cabinet minister. But it's dead now. It's finished. It, it, it's not powerful enough. It's no longer relevant. It needs rethinking. We're going to have to start again. And who exactly will start again, do you think? Well... It's a very good question. I mean, constitutionally, it's the responsibility of the Cabinet Office to construct the legislation. And we know from the time when Michael Gove was in charge of the Cabinet Office that they have decided, they told us finally, that they wouldn't contemplate new legislation until 2024. But they said instead of doing that, they would think about incremental changes bringing about some of the things we wanted, and none of those have transpired at all. Okay, thank you very much. So I wonder now if I could turn to the health and care bill. 
which is currently going through Parliament, specifically with the Venice principles in mind. The provisions of the provisions of this bill create what's described as a safe space for investigations to be conducted by the Health Service Safety Investigations Body, so that NHS staff and other medical professionals may speak freely during the course of an investigation. Would you say those safe space provisions as currently drafted aid or inhibit your role as Ombudsman? Well, first of all, I have a good relationship with the people who work in the health uh, HSPED, the, the body that is responsible for looking at patient safety investigations. It's not an interpersonal issue. But secondly, the bill drives the coach and horses through both the Venice principles and our ability to have a direct relationship with people who are involved in serious incidents. And that is a serious impediment to the operation of my office. It's a dilution of the powers that the Ombudsman has had since 1967, and it's unacceptable. Do you understand why that provision may be there in those circumstances? Yeah, because I'm not an ideologue and, you know, public policy is about debating difficult issues and coming to a reasonable view. But the issue for me is that as the one of the rapporteurs from Scandinavia said in, in the Venice Commission when it was debated, that this was brought about, this bill was brought about without even a consideration of the impact that it would have on the Ombudsman service. It was, it was argued without any research that it would have no impact on the powers of my office. And yet that is demonstrably not, not the case. And if it had been looked at more rigorously and in an evidence-based fashion, then there could have been a reasonable debate about the, the challenge of creating a safe space which carried public confidence, but that has never taken place. So uh, I, I don't doubt the integrity of those people who argue that clinicians should have the opportunity to disclose what really happened in serious incidents. And I have great respect for clinicians who have done that and who have been whistleblowers, for example. That's, you know, that's a very unpleasant experience. We need to find more rational ways of doing it. Yes. But to exclude the ombudsman who has specific responsibility for HSED, which is a body in jurisdiction, means that we cannot properly carry out our function because we are dependent from the bill in the permission of the High Court to go into cases that HSED is looking at. Now, I have two comments to make about that. First of all, since uh, the foundation of the Ombudsman, we've always had the power of the High Court to go into any area of public administration. So that is clearly a limitation on our power. And it means that a body that was set up to be a non-legal approach to dispute resolution has to become involved in a judicial challenge if it wants to get into the safe space. So I have been on the receiving end of judges in, in the High Court and the Court of Appeal who told me time and again that we don't want to judicialize the Ombudsman Service, that the courts are not the place to litigate complaints. And yet what the government is doing with this piece of legislation is saying to us, 
if we want to get into the safe space, then we have to go to the High Court and get their permission. And incidentally, it's not an exclusive safe space because coroners will have access to it. So the Ministry of Justice has insisted that coroners have access to the safe space, but the Cabinet Office has not insisted that the Ombudsman has access to the safe space. And of course, if you've got to go to the courts, there will be delays and huge public expense. And that's absolutely right. And we know that one of the reasons why the Ombudsman Service is is attractive to people, and, you know, we, we obtain compensation or redress for people to the tune of about half a million pounds a year. That's just on the financial side. But we know that you don't pay to go to an ombudsman. It's, in, it's an entirely free service. And that makes it very different from the courts where everything uh, has a cost. So it's not, it's not good, but we're not lying down over this. And, and uh, the story is not yet over. And I wish you well with it. Because the uh, Venice Commission is, in fact, given a unanimous opinion that this is a violation of its principles. They did. And they, they um, came out with a coruscating criticism of the government for not thinking carefully enough about the issue. And the government has not so far responded in a way to suggest they're taking that judgment seriously. Do you think there's any real chance that they're likely to change their stance? You know, as a Manchester City supporter, over 40 years of not winning, I never give up hope. I always think we might win next time. And there is a lot of interest in the Venice Commission opinion in the House of Lords. And there will be, we think, an amendment tabled to the bill in the next couple of months to test whether or not the government has got this right. So. Uh, You know, I'm not expressing confidence or lack of confidence, but we're not giving up on it. And we need to to make people understand that we have not stood idly by in allowing this to happen. It was me that took this to the Venice Commission. It wasn't the Venice Commission that came to me. And they undertook it. And they gave us a very hard time in terms of making sure they understood our position. So they didn't just take what we said for granted. I, I, I had to appear before very senior judges and defend our position. Uh, so in the end, it's very gratifying that uh, they came out so strongly in favour of the of the arms. Well, as a Chelsea supporter who's, who's uh, seen the ups and downs in exactly the same way, I can absolutely agree with your philosophy. And I wish you well in uh, your efforts to get this resolved. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. It's been great to hear what you've had to say, and I'm sure our listeners will be so much better informed as a result. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Bain's Law. Listen out for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss issues of interest to the legal community. If there is a professional perspective that you would like to share, get in touch via our website at www.barrybaines.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Baines Law. We look forward to presenting to you again very soon on Baines Law.